I always believed the internet would be a thing. I couldn't imagine some of the things that, of course, we now take for granted, but even back then, 40 years ago, the idea of new ways to communicate email and some messaging, things like that, new ways to buy products, new ways to learn things, new ways to get information. The idea was so powerful, I always believed it would happen. What was less clear was whether our company, AOL, would survive. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Well, Steve, welcome to the show. I guess who's welcoming who here? Exactly. Welcome to the revolution. (laughs) It's a beautiful office. Thank you. We've been here about 15 years, downtown DC, a few blocks from the White House. It's nice to see the sweet green outpost as well. Of course. They were an investment we made seven or eight years ago and proud of how they've built the company, recently went public, and we're regular customers because of their outpost strategy. I reached out to the CEO maybe two, three months ago because I wanted him on the show. And I think my note was on LinkedIn and I said, hey, this is going to be out of the blue, but you should check my account. I think I'm probably in the point oh oh one percent of all customers that you've ever had. <laughs> uh, selfishly speaking, I'd love to just have you on. So I'm flying to LA in a couple of weeks and I'm going oh, to do sweet green. All right, man. I start all these things the same way. I'll read your background back to you. Tell me where I screw up, and then I'll just ask you a bunch of questions. All right, let's go. Cool. I went to Williams College, got your degree in poli-sci. Then you went to Procter & Gamble, assistant brand manager for two years, Pizza Hut. Spent a year doing that? Correct. Then you went to Control Video Corp for about a year, which is very informative to the rest of the story. Did that become quantum computer services or were those two different things? Two different things. Okay, two different things. So you went to quantum computer services in 85. Correct. Which ultimately became renamed AOL in 91. Right. Initially Um, America Online, but then everybody started calling it AOL. Do you like it like America Online? No, AOL is fine. AOL is fine. Like sometimes we have the like, when people call it KP, it's no, it's Kleiner Perkins type thing. Right. I don't know if you felt that No, way. totally fine. Uh, you were the VP of marketing at 26 years old for this company. Then you were the EVP in 87. So about a year or two later, you became the CEO in 91. It went public in 92. You are now the, I don't even know the title, chairman. You run Revolution Capital. That started in 2005. You're on the chair of the Smithsonian, which is pretty awesome. Case Foundation, Accelerate Brain Cancer, and uh, Startup America Partnership. Some fun facts about AOL that I dug up. It is the best returning stock if you bought it at the IPO in the 90s. It grew almost 12,000% return to shareholders. Largest business merger in history. First tech IPO. Not first tech IPO. First internet IPO. First internet IPO. Yep. Fun guessing game for you. In the 2010s, what do you think were the two best performing stocks of the 2010s? Hmm. I have to think about that. They, the difference is they went public so much later. The, right. you know, part of the issue with AOL, we went public when the market value that day was $70 million. And eight years later, it's $160 billion. So that's how we get to that 12,000%. You know, the companies now go, do, not so go, artificially do, do not go public when they're worth 70 million. Usually it's billions, sometimes tens of billions. So 
I don't know the answer to that question. I have to think about it because it's not, it's not what's, you know, the most valuable companies. It's kind of what they went public at and what that multiple is. I'll give you two hints. One is a tech company that you know very well, an internet company. The other is a food company. Hmm. I'm stumped. The first is Netflix and the second is Domino's. Yeah, the Domino's one surprised me because it was a private equity Bain deal, I think, that then went public again. And I I think the main reason for that is because they embraced digital before many, many companies did. And like most of their business is done through the app today, similar to how most of the Sweetgreen business is done through the app today. And Anyway, it's very instructive. To, I think I think Netflix of, went public before that time frame, didn't they? It, was they the may year? have, but it still was the top appreciating uh, stock of the 2010s. Well, and one other tweak to your bio, which was correct, was you said I was became CEO of AOL in 1991, went public in 1992. That is true, but it's actually more interesting, which is I became CEO and then got demoted just before I went public and then got promoted right after we went public. So I was CEO for like a year, then six months before we went public, the venture capital uh, investors on the board said, all right, this, we're trying to sell this idea of the internet. Investors don't know what the internet is. They're gonna be skeptical to start having a, I think at the time I was 31 years old, having a 30 something year old CEO is not gonna fly. So I was asked to step aside as CEO and have the, one of the co-founders along with me and Mark Seraf, uh, Jim Kimsey step back in as CEO because he was, 20 years older, we went public, and then six months later, I was reinstated as CEO. So it's kind of frustrated at the time. Of course, now it's perfectly fine for companies to go public with 30-something-year-old CEOs, but that was my, you know, a little interesting uh, tweak to your bio. In your heart of hearts, how upset were you when, oh, they, demo- when they demoted you? Super upset. What'd you do? 30, were you married? I was married and had been running the company for a while before I officially became CEO. So I was upset. My number of people on the team were upset. Some threatened to... The team had your back. Yeah, the team had my back. And they just thought it was not the right call. And so I slept on it and said, okay, this is not right. But I believe in this company and I want it to be successful. And I think one path to be successful is to go public and didn't really buy into the logic that I was too young, but understood there was something to that, that the market wouldn't necessarily be ready for at the time. It's, it's obviously changed in the last couple of decades, but this was three decades ago. There were not a lot of you know, companies going public with 30-year-old CEOs. So I decided to tough it out and you know, took the demotion and kind of led the effort to go public, even though I wasn't technically the CEO, and then took the title back. So, Were you on the roadshow? Oh, of course. So you were on the plane. I basically did all the, you know, you did I, I essentially was acting as the CEO when we went public, even though I didn't have the title. When we were doing the roadshow, I was taking the lead on most of the presentations, answering most of the, you know, the questions. So investors probably thought it was a little bizarre that I wasn't the CEO. But the, you know, Jim Kimsey was a great guy, you know, co-founded the company with me, and, and I mentioned Mark Seraf. He had 20, 25 years more experience in the business world, and maybe some investor took some comfort in that at the time, but my guess is it was a mistake for the board to ask. But thankfully, not long after, it literally was, I think, a few months after we completed the IPO, I was reinstated as CEO. Was that awkward, or was that the most vindicating thing that could have happened? It was not awkward. Being demoted was awkward. Being, being reinstated was vindicating for sure. <laughs> Just a bump in the road on the entrepreneurial journey. I took a bullet for all you younger CEOs going that's, public. That's right. Now it would be mutiny if that happened. Well, now nobody would think that you know, Mark Zuckerberg was in his 20s when Facebook went public. Nobody said he should step aside for a, an older, older guy. And looking back in hindsight, is there anything that you think you could have done differently 
to have never gotten to that point in the first place? Or do you think it was solely a function of just age? I think it was some age. I think there also were some members of the board who felt that with me in charge, they would be listened to a little less because we were transitioning the board, bringing some new people in. So I think it also was some maybe some egos and personal agendas of some of the board members that might have you know, had something to do with it. But uh, yeah, it was you know, bumping the road 33 decades ago, onwards and upwards. But when you're reading the bio, it did, it did wait a minute, that's not exactly what that's happened. Right. There was a little bit of a circuitous path. And was Kleiner Perkins on your board? Was somebody from- Kleiner, Kleiner? Perkins was, Frank Caulfield, the yeah. founder of Kleiner Perkins Caulfield Buyers. I do not remember exactly where Frank was in this <laughs> effort to demote you know, poor Steve case, but he actually stayed on the board for a, number, a couple decades. He was a terrific board member, and putting aside that little incident. And I actually kind of want to revisit this in a bit, but do you want to hear a funny story about my plane flight over here and someone that knows you pretty well? So that, that depends what, who, who it is and what the story yeah, exactly. is. I may or may not want to hear it. Exactly. <laughs> so I had to take a layover because I was coming from a wedding in Montana. So I laid over in O'Hare and I get on the plane and there's a woman right next to me across the aisle. And I look at her and I go, gosh, she looks really familiar. So I couldn't help myself because I never can. And I asked her, has anyone ever told you that your doppelganger is Meg Whitman? And she said, you know, I have heard that I am Meg Whitman. <laughs> <laughs> and so we get to talking and she says, you know, what do you do? Where do you work? I tell her Kleiner Perkins. And she says, what are you reading? And I said, I'm reading a book by a fellow named Steve Case, so I suspect you know, given that you're both kind of in the scene in DC, Rise of the Rest, and she goes, no way. <laughs> and she, of course, she's an investor in Revolution Capital. Right, and- an investor, been super helpful with Rise of the Rest, so we've been you know, friends and colleagues for three decades. So she says, hello. Hi, Meg, hi, Meg. She says, hello. She's on her way, I think today, no, tomorrow, to go to Kenya. Did you know this? Yes. To be the ambassador yes. to the United States of Kenya. Even more of a fun fact, did you know, and of course you know, I have no idea, you've lived in D.C. for three decades. When you become the ambassador for representing us in another country, you basically become the CEO of that embassy. And that embassy has 2,000 people in it. Right. And she's there for two and a half years. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. So she's on her way to an adventure. No, I, knew, I knew she was being good. She called about a year ago because she is an investor in our Rise of the Rest Fund. And we've made across our various funds nearly 200 seed investments in 100 different cities. And she said, I'm being vetted for a position. She couldn't say what it was. And as part of that, they're reviewing all my financial holdings, including my fund investments. And they have questions about a few of the companies. And there was you know, other, out of literally 200, I think there were eight or 10 com- companies there were some questions about. And it was in retrospect, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, what, what's the role she's getting? This is the, the pattern recognition across these companies was not obvious to us, but eventually it turned out she was obviously being up for this ambassador role. She'll be terrific representing our country. Fantastic. So the book, as I was telling her, is your second book. It comes out September 27th. It's called Rise of the Rest. It was a great read. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the anecdotes in there too. Can you give the like 30 second bio, like what it is and why did you feel compelled to write it? So it's a story about the people and places all around the country that are building kind of entrepreneurial momentum, but are kind of off the radar. Just people aren't paying attention to them. And I wanted to tell their stories. It's a, it's a story about different companies, covered dozens of companies, dozens of different cities. But it's really a story about, the I think, the future of America, that the innovation economy, which for the last several decades has been really dominated by the coast and particularly where you're based in Silicon Valley, 
is starting to disperse both in terms of people and capital. Uh, we started seeing some signs of that over the past decade as we've been on this journey initially when I was chairing the Startup America initiative for the White House for President Obama. And then when we launched our Rise Arrest bus tour about eight years ago and then launched our first Rise Arrest seed fund about five years ago, we've seen momentum building around that. But things have really accelerated the last two years from the, from the pandemic. So I'm hopeful that this next wave of innovation, entrepreneurship, Silicon Valley certainly will continue to be the leader of the pack and other big cities, New York, Boston, others will continue to be very strong, but that dozens of other cities will emerge as startup cities and that will result in more innovation happening and more jobs being created in more places, which also can help perhaps unify a very divided country where some people are doing really well and excited about the future. And a lot of people are feeling frustrated and left behind and anxious about the future. So that's really what Rise of Rest is all about. It's very complimentary to the first book that you wrote, which was what, 2016? Yeah. Called The Third Wave? Correct. And in the book, you basically posit that there was three waves of innovation that have happened in your lifetime, I suppose. The first was AOL, CompuServe, the like initial foray into the internet. The second was the applications that were built on the internet. These are things like Facebook, Snapchat, et cetera. And then the third is, I guess, maybe the way that I understand it, when the digital world meets the physical world in meaningful ways. This could be in education, retail, finance, things that are much more near and dear to our hearts and probably bigger investment opportunities. Is that fair? Yeah, it's very fair. The first phase starting in the 80s and then certainly taken off in the 90s was essentially building the on-ramps to get the internet stood up. And when we started AOL in 1985, only 3% of people were online. Those 3% were online an average of one hour a week. So it's pretty early days. And our work and the work of many other companies was really to build the internet and build the on-ramps to the internet and build reasons why people should be on the internet. That then unleashed, as you said, the second wave, which was, you know, since the internet was already built, you didn't have to do that anymore. You could build on top of the internet. And that's where the software, kind of the app economy took off. But I think the, the exciting thing about this third wave is it it's sort of where the internet meets the real world and really starts improving big, important aspects of our lives, how we stay healthy, how we learn, how we invest, what we eat, how we get around, things like that, which also happen to give you the opportunity to disrupt the biggest industries in the world. But I do think it will require a different mindset, even a different playbook for entrepreneurs, which is why I wrote that uh, third wave book. And couple of things in particular that I think are going to be much more important. You're starting to see evidence of this now, but when I wrote the book six years ago, that was not as clear. One is the role of partnerships. Second wave was about you know, apps and virality and, and you know kind of getting lucky and suddenly you have an overnight success like a, you know, Snapchat or many, many other examples. In the third wave, it's going to require systems level integration. So if you want to fix healthcare, the software, the technology is sort of the table stakes. You then have to build the partnerships to get that integrated. And you also have to understand policy. These are regulated businesses and entrepreneurs get frustrated by regulations, but because they are the most important aspects of our lives and because they're the largest industries, they are and they will continue to be regulated. So entrepreneurs will need to engage with governments uh, at a state level, at a national level, sometimes even uh, multiple governments at a global level to make sure the policy framework is supportive of innovation in these big industries. The key focus of that book, The Third Wave, it was trying to predict what was going to happen in terms of this next wave and how the entrepreneurial playbook needed to change. And it did touch on one of the chapters was a 
around place and rise the rest. And uh, that really just, you know, decided about a year ago that it was time to write a book just focused on rise of rest because I thought it was a momentum that was building, a wave that was building that was also going to transform the innovation landscape and was still kind of off the radar. And uh, the pandemic has created more attention on that. Even last week, I saw that Andreessen Horowitz has decided that no longer headquartered in Silicon Valley, they're now headquartered in the cloud and they're opening offices in different places. And so you're seeing some uh, that dispersion that started a decade ago, accelerated over the last couple of years. I think over the next 10 years, uh, it's going to look quite different. And that's why I wrote the book on Rise of Rust. I do think people will be intrigued by the level of innovation happening in these cities, the kind of companies that are being built in these cities, and how it can potentially change that trajectory of job creation, economic growth in the country, and also change the way we think about innovation. So it's not just dominated by a place like Silicon Valley. It's much more dispersed across uh, dozens of cities. What I found interesting was one of the points that you made around the three waves was that wave one was actually not Silicon Valley centric. If you look at some of the canonical companies of that era, many of them were not actually in the Bay Area. Wave two was primarily Bay Area based. And the argument that you make is that wave three part and parcel because of the partnerships that are required, not necessarily just a bunch of software engineers to go build an application, are going to be dispersed across different pockets in America in this case. So one of the examples that I think of is, you know, there's a lot of healthcare in Minneapolis, like UHG is there. And if you want to build the next era of healthcare company, that might be digital, that might be telehealth, that might be whatever, it would sure help if you could forge partnerships with the UHGs of the world that might even behoove you more than getting access to all the software engineers that might be in the Bay Area. Is that yeah, absolutely the health healthcare is one sixth the economy. It's dominated by some very important organizations on the hospital side, like a Mayo Clinic in, in Minnesota or a Johns Hopkins in Maryland or a Cleveland Clinic in Ohio or an MD Anderson in Texas. Those partnerships could be pivotal in terms of companies trying to kind of disrupt, innovate in healthcare. And as you said, whether it be United Health in Minnesota or HCA in Tennessee, some of the most important healthcare payers are in, in different parts of the country. And being closer to those partners likely matters. And we've seen that with a number of the companies we've backed in terms of our rise to rest strategy that it was a strategic advantage to be in a certain place. In Chattanooga, for example, we backed a company called Freightways that built a Bloomberg-like platform for the trucking and logistics industry. I didn't know this till we visited Chattanooga, but some of the biggest trucking companies in the country are headquartered in Chattanooga. So if you're building a platform for that industry, that's the best place to be, not San Francisco, not New York, or a company in uh, Northwest Arkansas, Fayetteville, called AcreTrader, actually started in San Francisco, but moved to Arkansas because it's a platform around investing in farmland. And they said, if we're going to be credible and authentic and trusted by farmers, we should be in in that part of the country, not on the coast. And that company's gone done, done, done quite well. So there are more and more of these examples that I think you'll see accelerating over the next decade. And I think where you take it one step further in Rise of the Rest is really the way that you have stepped up in terms of democratizing capital for these startups across America. You're literally... <laughs> I imagine you in a bus driving around the country doing pitch competitions, trying to ignite funding for these companies in areas that were not previously there. 
Yeah, no, it started, as I mentioned, it, it, uh, a little over a decade ago when I was asked by President Obama to chair this initiative called Startup America. So I started flying around, including one time with him on Air Force One to Cleveland, but spent a good part of my time traveling the country, seeing what was happening firsthand. And that led us to kind of hit the road with a Rise of the Rest bus. Our first tour was uh, eight years ago, cities like Detroit, Pittsburgh, Nashville that had been a key like part a of it. startup rock star. Yeah, it was, you know, keep, well, these are cities that in some ways powered the Industrial Revolution over a century ago. It was, you know, you know the, the Detroit was the essentially the Silicon Valley at its time around cars. Pittsburgh was in some ways the Silicon Valley at its time around the steel and, and sort of building you know, the industrial, building out the Industrial Revolution. But those cities had, had struggled over the last half a century, but were being revitalized because of the work of startups. And so having seen that, we kept going and we've now visited with our bus nearly 50 cities. And then we launched about five years ago, the first of our, our Rise the Rest funds. And as I mentioned, we've now invested in 200 companies. We have dozens of investors in those funds, LPs in those funds. You mentioned Meg Whitman, but for this Rise of Rest, instead of going to in the institutional market for capital, we went to just prominent individuals that were investors or entrepreneurs or executives. So the roster of our LPs in the Rise of the Rest Fund include Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz and Eric Schmidt and Jim Breyer and John Doerr and Ray Dalio and David Sarah Rubenstein. Blakely. And the Sarah list goes Blakely, on and on. Of course, Meg Whitman, Tori Birch. It's an amazing group of people that share our belief that innovation can happen anywhere and entrepreneurs everywhere should get a, a shot. And it's not just about place. We've also learned as we've traveled around, it's a way to lean into Diversity. Many of the cities we visited are more diverse. And as a result, as long as you bring kind of a prism of intentionality, you often find a more diverse mix of entrepreneurs. So our Rise of Rest Fund, over 40% of the companies we've backed are either female founders or founders of color, which is above what most venture funds see. That's because we're hitting the road and meeting entrepreneurs where they are and really looking for the entrepreneurs of the future and the places that most people are not really uh, looking I can't help myself. What was flying on Air Force One with the president? Oh, it was pretty cool. Pretty cool. I did take a picture while I was on there. Afterwards, I was told I wasn't supposed to do that. So I, I just was asked oh, not, not to secu- share that. Security, there's security on the flight, right? Well, of course. And then the president has his own room? Uh, the president's kind of up, up there in the front. And You're not The riffraff riff riff <laughs> is in the back. But yeah, there's sort of a middle section. I was with some of the cabinet secretaries in the back section, as I, as I recall, was uh, sort of the press. Uh, no, it was obviously a lot of fun. Uh, but it was also great to have the president of the United States basically saying entrepreneurs are our future, that we needed to lean into the building the new technologies, trying to figure out ways to be a magnet for talent, including immigration policy. And we needed to try to build the industries of the future and do it in a more inclusive way and not just rely on certain people in certain places to kind of lead that you know, that charge. So the fact that he's willing to was spend time. He also agreed to do the first ever, this is a decade ago, the first ever demo day at White, the White House where we got entrepreneurs from all over the country to pitch the president of the United States on their companies. They asked a pretty good question. I, I told them afterward, you, yeah, you could be a venture capitalist. You have pretty good instincts on people and ideas. So it was a great opportunity to work with them and use the platform of the presidency, the platform of the White House to shine a spotlight on the work of entrepreneurs all across the country. I'll tell you, when I flew into D.C., you fly over all the monuments here. You see, it made me very proud in a weird way. As I thought about sitting down with you, reading your book, looking at all the things and work that you're doing to fire entrepreneurship's belly in America, it is a nice reminder to see other countries that we're generally competing against not feel that way. You know, like you see other countries like in China that are just knocking their entrepreneurs down. And it's always a good reminder 
to come here, look at the work that you're doing, see the things that are going on abroad, and just know that like it's such a bedrock of everything that we do here. Yeah, I, agree. I obviously agree with that. I'm proud of the American story. I'm proud that 250 years ago it was just a startup, and like many startups, almost failed. You know, the country almost hit the wall, but somehow figured out a way to survive and then thrive, and went from this fledgling startup that nobody really believed would be successful to the leader of the free world with the leading economy in the world. It is, as you know, worth reminding ourselves that that didn't happen by accident. That was the work of entrepreneurs who led the way 200 years ago in the agricultural revolution, led the way 100 years ago in the industrial revolution, and more recently led the way with the the digital revolution. But, and it's a big but, other countries have figured out that sort of the secret sauce that's powered the American story is innovation entrepreneurship. And they're doing all they can to try to kind of lead in this next chapter. And so we're seeing that with countries all around the world. China, particularly in the last 20, 30 years, has gotten much more focused on technology, much more focused on investing in in, in R&D, much more focused on trying to build an entrepreneurial economy. As you said, there have been some setbacks in the last couple of years which I find a little puzzling where they've been reining in some of the entrepreneurial sector. I think that in the long run, it will be a mistake for them. But it is you know, worth noting, if you look at the global venture capital dollars that you know, 20, 30 years ago, over 90% of global venture capital was in the United States. Now it's well under 50%, which proves that entrepreneurship is globalizing, venture capital is globalizing. So even though we're the leader of the pack and we've had a pretty good run the last 250 years, we need to make sure we don't get cocky or complacent. Others are coming at us. Uh, and if we, you know, if we don't have the right policies, if we don't have the right incentives, or we don't have immigration policy, for example, so we continue to be a magnet for talent, if we don't back more people in more places to have a more inclusive innovation economy, we're likely to miss out on the next big thing and other countries could steal our lead. So we should celebrate what's gotten us here, but recognize that, you know, game on in terms of this next wave of entrepreneurship and the United States really needs to step up and lean into the future. This is kind of a weird question, so bear with me here. But in the first wave, which AOL was a part of, a lot of the unique differentiation of the company that I've read about is more around, let's call it go-to-market motions than it is necessarily technology, where you did a lot of work with Apple. You just did a lot of work yourself without hands on the keyboard coding that incrementally move the needle for that business. In the second wave, it seems like the needle moving happens generally more hands on the keyboard. Do you think in the third wave, there's a bit of a comeback of the, let's put in air quotes, business person, the person that can strike up these deals and do these partnerships, and maybe not as much of a halo effect on necessarily just the engineers writing the code? I think that's fair. Obviously, the engineers writing code are always going to be important. But when we started AOL, there are a lot of engineers writing a lot of code, a lot of, you know, a lot of parts of the internet. But it was very difficult for average people to get online. It was too expensive when they were online, and there wasn't enough to do when they finally got connected. That there are call in those early days. Part of the reason that only three percent were online is PCs that were being purchased didn't have communications technology built in, didn't have modems built in. The PC manufacturers didn't think most people would want to get online. So why build that into every computer when only a few people were using it? When you got connected, some of the services were $10 an hour. So no wonder people didn't use it that much. That Back then, it was a text-based service that you had to then load some complicated communication software and configure a bunch of things even to get online, which was kind of intimidating to people. And as I mentioned, when you finally did get online, there wasn't much to do and there was nobody to talk to. And so we really had to focus on trying to you know make the internet available to everyone and we, our whole 
focus at AOL was how do you make it easy to use, useful, fun, and affordable, because that was the way to open up the market. So I was able to partner with our technology team, particularly Mark Serif, who was a co-founder of the company and CTO of the company, understand what was possible with the technology, and then figure out ways to make it as simple as possible and as accessible as possible, and then work on all every as- other aspect of the essentially the value chain to, to drive down the prices, try to get the PC manufacturers to build modems in so it would be easier for people to get on. So there was a lot of effort in that first decade to really take the idea of the internet and make it available to everybody. And to your question, that need for kind of that business sense, that marketing sense, that consumer kind of centricity sense, which was so important in that first wave was less important in the second wave. And the the startups led by, as you said, coders that launched products and that got commercial success and then built a team to figure out how to best monetize it, turn it into real business. That really was the driver for obviously a lot of great companies, Facebook, Google, et cetera. I think in this third wave, as we talked about before, because the technology is important, but the real question is, can you get that technology integrated into healthcare systems, into payers, and you know, how do you knit together with in, in the context of some of the policy regulatory side of things, that's going to put more of a onus on collaboration, more on, on essentially kind of sales to get people to believe in your idea. And you're going to have to navigate some complicated policy issues and spend time with policymakers, whether in this country it's members of Congress or regulators at different agencies, which likely is going to be a different skill set that likely will result in more of the companies in the third wave being led by kind of business folks that have experience and credibility to establish the partnerships and some trust to deal with some of the complicated and very nuanced policy issues. So, of course, the technology is always going to be important, but I think it's fair to say in this third wave, the skill set of a typical founder and typical CEO will change a bit if you're focused on some of these third wave sectors. Gives those of us with the gift of gab and nothing else a little bit of hope. Yeah, (laughs) stay hopeful. (laughs) Can I rewind to some of the AOL stuff? I have a million questions, some of which I've heard you talk about publicly, others of which I'm hoping you will. It was actually called Quantum Computer Services before it was named AOL. Quantum Computer Services was a, how do I say this, Netflix for Atari? Is that right? Not quite. There was a the, this predecessor company I joined in 1983 when I moved to the D.C. area called yeah. Control Video. They launched a service called GameLine right. that essentially was Netflix for video games. Right. It was a communications cartridge, a modem that plugged into Atari game machines and allowed you to download video games, like kind of in, in-home arcade, if you will. That failed in part because the Atari market blew up just as that you know, product, GameLine, was coming to market, which then led me and two other people at that company, Jim Kimsey and Mark Serif, to co-found Quantum Computer Services in 1985. And we shifted our focus from Atari game machines to then home computers that were emerging. And our initial partnership with Commodore, which at the time had the Commodore 64 was the number one selling home computer. And then we did a partnership with Tandy, which had Radio Shack, which at the time was a big computer brand as well. And then Apple and then IBM. So it really was... uh, building private labels or a white label online services for each of those computers in partnership with each of those computer manufacturers. And the reason we did that was when we started, it was really difficult to raise venture capital. We raised about $1 million in our first round. And at the time, one of our competitors called Prodigy was backed by IBM and Sears, and they had committed $1 billion. So we knew $1 million was not going to beat $1 billion if it was a hand-to-hand combat. So we said we need to figure out some other way to, you know, enter the market. Our strategy was establish these partnerships, 
get those companies to work with us to customize services for their audiences and then have the companies take the lead in marketing, building our software into their products and services. And that worked quite well. And that really was what uh, drove our the whole company for the first five years or so. But then we had a little bit of a problem that became sort of an existential can I, can I threat. You? I have a question before I get there. I've actually have several questions. All right, I want to have, have a shit grin on my face from ear to ear because the names that you're saying are really just relics of the past. Radio Shack, thinking about Sears and IBM teaming up. <laughs> to, well, to, at the to time, do. Sears was number one in retail and IBM was number one in computing. So it was a pretty uh, powerful combination. But thank Thankfully, when they, they committed a lot of capital to it, as I mentioned, $1 billion, but they didn't really have that entrepreneurial team you need. Right. They brought some people from each company together to create a joint venture that was a little too corporate, a little too out of touch with uh, with consumers. And help me understand this as well. When you went to Control Video Corp, they were building modems into the gaming systems, into the Ataris, but they were not at that point in the world building modems into computers yet? Correct. They were Well, they weren't building them in. They were offering it as a standalone retail cartridge so you can go to a retail store instead of buying a video game cartridge you bought a game line cartridge which essentially was a communications modem so you then plugged that cartridge into your phone line and you could download video games but yeah at the time they were just focused on Atari games but now it was not crazy because when that company was conceived in 1981 virtually nobody had home computers but virtually everybody had Atari game machines so they're, they're going after the market that was so dominant at the time made sense and it took a few years before most people decided they wanted to get a home computer and in your mind, you went there because that made a lot of sense as the initial use case gaming to get onto the internet. Well, it made it, it, for a couple of reasons. One is even when I graduated from college in 1980, I knew I wanted to be part of what we now think of as the internet revolution. I read a bunch of things and. 1978, 79, these concepts like video text and uh, some, something called Minitel in France, Prestel in the UK, interactive TV, Cube was being tested in Columbus, Ohio. These things were bubbling and it was really interesting. And I wanted to be part of it. But when I graduated in 1980, there were no companies to go to. There was you know, no venture capitalist backing college graduates with crazy newfangled ideas. So that's why I initially went to as you said in the intro to Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, which was and is one of the great marketing companies. I thought I'd learn a lot. Then I went to, I was there about two years. Then I went to a division at the time of PepsiCo Pizza Hut in Wichita, Kansas. I was there about a year. And then I found my opening in 1983 to move to the DC area because this company, Control Video, was going to market with their game line product. And I joined the marketing team. So that was my way to get into the industry, if you will. And that's the main reason I did it. But they did have what looked like an interesting strategy of going after this Atari market by giving those game machines communications capability. Uh, I just think the timing was off when they announced the product at the Consumer Electronics Show in January of 1983. It was the hit of the show. By the time they shipped the product in the fall of 1983, you know, the Atari market had died. And I remember actually your former colleague at Kleiner Perkins, Frank Caulfield, attending my first board meeting. I think at the time I was I don't know, 25 maybe, probably 25. And I'd never been in a board meeting before and I just joined this company you know, a few months before and it was clear that this launch was a disaster. And I remember Frank looking at the board materials and the sales statistics for the first quarter and saying, 
you would have thought they would have shoplifted more than that. <laughs> Nobody was buying this product. And Frank, Frank and his you know, kind of wry humor basically summarized the status of the company, which is essentially you know, dead on arrival. So that was my <laughs> welcome to the world of startups and entrepreneurship. My parents at this point were rather concerned because when I graduated and worked for Procter & Gamble, they, they knew that. They, were, they thought that was pretty good. Sense. When I went to Pizza Hut, they struck them as kind of a step down. What, what are you doing? And when I go to this company called Control Video that only months later was teetering on bankruptcy, I think they had concluded that my career was on a one-way path to oblivion. I'm super curious, where did that come from? Like this idea of building a foundation and then basically putting your risk dial to 10 just wanting to jump in two feet first. like What was pushing you, if you can remember, to very young Steve at that point to, to take that on? I was always, uh, as a kid, kind of entrepreneurial, starting little businesses. You know, none of them really amounted to much, but I was you know, just intrigued with the idea of figuring out different things that people might want to buy. And in high school and a little bit in college, I was interested in the music business, did concert promotion, things like that for a while. But then I really was, as I said before, captivated by the idea of the internet and the you know, late 70s and decided that's just what I wanted to do. And I've been interested in picking a challenge, kind of a mountain worth climbing, a battle worth fighting. And for me at the time, it really was trying to help build the internet, help make it available to everybody. More recently, it's a similar focus around rise the rest. How do you build a innovation economy that is more inclusive? In some ways, the things I was doing 40 years ago are the same things I was, I'm doing now. I'm trying to, then I was trying to level the playing field using the internet around information, education, communication, so everybody had access to the same tools. Now I'm trying to level the playing field around capital and opportunity by backing more entrepreneurs in more places. And in both cases, I'm doing that by building out partnerships and establishing networks that together can do things that you couldn't do on your own. So in some ways, maybe I'm just a one trick pony. I have one play I keep running. First it was the internet, now it's the world of entrepreneurship. Oh man, hammer the hits. Just keep playing that thing over and over again. I've always wondered, and this is me and you talking, nobody listening, but in your heart of hearts, the amount of things that had to go right for this thing to work, for the internet to work, for computers to get modems into them, for them to be like a Netscape that you can access it to, you know, at the time there was, what'd you say, one hour a day, 3% of the population. When you went to Control Video Corp, it was less than that. It was nothing. Boy, there's one thing to squint your eyes and see something. There's another thing to have bad vision, squint your eyes, and then maybe like the wind blows in a certain direction for five minutes of a year and it goes right. And it did. Did you always believe, like, did you really, really always believe that this was going to be a thing? I always believed the internet would be a thing. I couldn't imagine some of the things that, of course, we now take for granted, but even back then, 40 years ago, the idea of new ways to communicate email and some messaging, things like that, new ways to buy products, new ways to learn things, new ways to get information. The idea was so powerful, I always believed it would happen. What was less clear was whether our company, AOL, would survive. And so there were many times that we almost hit the wall, had to go through layoffs, ran out of money, partnerships dissolved, a bunch of things happening. I never for a moment gave up on the idea of the internet, but there were some scary moments where it wasn't clear our company was gonna be able to make it, let alone thrive. But I think having that kind of sense of there was a light at the end of the tunnel. The tunnel was long and the light was flickering, but I kept my focus on that. And eventually, 
feels like for the tunnel got a little shorter, the light got a little brighter. Right. And eventually things really accelerated. Even the, I talked about when we went public and the valuation. The other number I remember is when we went public, we'd been at this at AOL for seven years. I'd been at this in terms of being focused on this industry for a decade. And we had, when we went public, less than 200,000 customers. And then 10 years later, it was tens of millions of customers. It was just a reminder that sometimes revolutions happen in evolutionary ways. And that first decade was a struggle. Some people left the company because they just couldn't believe anymore. We had a lot of challenges, as I mentioned, but eventually it broke through and eventually things really accelerated. So I did learn the importance of passion and perseverance. And if you believe in something, sticking with it. And thankfully, eventually it paid off with the yeah, well, on the internet, and it's starting to pay off with our focus at Revolution on Rise of the Rest. We're finally starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel in terms of what's happening now in terms of regional entrepreneurship. I interrupted you in the middle of one of your stories when I think you were going to tell me the tunnel looked a little bit longer and the light may have flickered a little bit more than you would have liked. I suspect it was the Apple deal where you were showing up to Apple pretty much every day for three months, talking to, as you put it, anybody and everybody that would just talk to you, trying to find somebody that would give you a yes, right? That was to white label AOL to Apple? Yeah, we had already done a deal with Commodore and then we'd done a deal with Tandy and Radio Shack and I felt the next thing we really had to do was a deal with Apple, both for the Apple II and the new Macintosh, which was just being introduced. And I was based in Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. As the EVP at 27, eight years old. Yeah, something like that. And I decided we had to get this Apple deal. And so I rented an apartment in San Francisco I think it was for six months, not three months. And every single day, drove down to Apple and Cupertino and knocked on doors trying to find, talk to a marketing person, talk to technology people, talk to customer service people, figure out some way to get a foot in the door. After two or three months, I think the security people at the desk started feeling sorry for me and gave me a permanent guest badge. So I was able to walk in without having to check in every time. And then I'd kind of wander around the building, kind of looking for somebody who I could get to say yes. And finally found a group, uh, actually was the customer service group, and pitched them on the idea of doing a service together that would be a more efficient way for them to provide customer service to Apple computer owners. And then we could overlay other services and split the revenue. And so it would be a way they could provide better customer service at lower costs and also generate incremental revenues. And so they agreed to that and also got them to agree to license the Apple brand name to us to create a service called Apple Inc. Personal Edition. And I think they had not licensed their Apple brand to anybody at that point in time, but we got them to agree to do that. And then we geared up and launched the service and had all kinds of challenges and frustrations with Apple because I think they regretted having licensed their Apple brand to somebody else. They We had a real disconnect in terms of the market. You strong them a little bit. We had strong arm. <laughs> we had no power. But they, at the time, were only selling software. We wanted to give it away. And they were only selling software through authorized Apple retail stores. We wanted to give away our free trial disk to everybody. And so it became a little bit of a battle. They, of course, held all the cards. And after a few months of going back and forth, basically called and said, we want to cancel the deal. We want to get our brand back. We want to shut down this Apple Inc. service. Uh, We just think this was a mistake for us. And we just want to go our separate ways, which was scary and an existential threat to the company. We were able to negotiate, a, I think it was a $2 million breakup fee so we could use that money to stay alive. And we had to figure out what to call it. Couldn't call it Apple Inc. anymore. 
which led to an internal contest within our company. We had uh, maybe 30 or 40 employees at the time. We couldn't afford to hire somebody to do branding, so we, we had to make it up on our own. And one of the suggestions was Online America, which I thought was pretty good, but thought it would be better if we flipped it and made it America Online. And so we said, okay, let's go with that. And we rebranded Apple Inc. America Online. And what looked like kind of a existential, deadly dynamic where the loss of the Apple deal uh, might result in the company failing, turned out by rebranding at America Online, then merging all our separate services that we had done for different PCs under one service that was interconnected. People from all these different services could talk to each other, things like that. Coupled with then launching a Windows version of it, really resulted in a takeoff of what happened. Sometimes what looks like a problem can become an opportunity. That certainly was the case with Apple. Even worse at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, but you went on to raise on the back of the Apple deal a bunch of venture capital. I say a bunch. It was $5 million, yeah. I think. <laughs> at the time, it was a bunch. These days, less of a bunch. But no, it was. It was right. I think that was from Kleiner, maybe at that point? Or, or? Actually, Kleiner, Kleiner was an early investor in that other company, Control Video yep. and GameLine. You know, lost all their money there. So when we were relaunching as Quantum Computer Services, decided to take a pass. They thought, okay, we've already decided you guys are not what we're looking for. But then two or three years later, they invested again. That probably was part of that round along with Alan Patrickoff and some other folks. And so you're hyping this Apple deal up. You're lining up a bunch of deals sequentially. Your name's on the line on these things. And then you raise a bunch of money on the back of that. And then boom. Yeah the bottom of that deal drops out. Yeah, we spent most of that $5 million to launch the Apple service. And so when the Apple deal cratered, the board members of venture capitalists were pretty upset. Several of them wanted, Jim Kimsey at the time was CEO, thought I should get fired over this because it was a bet the company move and it turned out to be a bad move. But somehow I managed to survive and a few years later, we were on a much better path. I've heard you be described as the shock absorber of the company, meaning what you would say is sometimes people were overly optimistic and cocky and you felt it was your job, and I really love this quote, to delegate paranoia. Other times people were down and you felt like it was your job to remind people that this is a battle worth fighting. Did this feel like one of those moments to absorb the shock? Yeah, no, I think that that's true with the, I think founders in general, as companies get larger, they have to keep their eyes on the prize. They have to keep people focused on what they're trying to do and why it's important but recognize there's going to be ups and downs. And certainly we're seeing this now this year in the public markets. Some stocks have dropped 50, 60, 70, 80%. And people in companies that were quite confident a year ago suddenly are quite anxious. And companies that look well-positioned a year ago, some of them are starting to fail. And that's just the dynamic of business generally and certainly the dynamic around entrepreneurship specifically. It's a roller coaster. There are very few companies that are overnight successes. There are very few companies that have a straight line to success. And as a result, you know, leaders have to shoulder the responsibility of absorbing some of that anxiety when the chips are down. But also, as you mentioned, reminding people when they're starting to get a little cocky that it's a tough world out there. Other competitors are taking a shot and try to level out things a bit, even out things a bit. So the highs and the lows are not so accentuated. It was one of the jobs I felt kind of being the shock absorber. When you absorb that shock, when you feel that, like when you absorb the anxiety of the company in some ways, do you think you feel it less than I would or somebody else in the team does? Or do you think you just externalize it in a different way? 
I think it's probably a little easier for me, given my personality, to absorb it than it is for some. I've always been pretty calm, sometimes too much. Sometimes I would be criticized for not being more enthusiastic about things, for not celebrating some things. You know, it cuts both ways, but I've always been able to you know, thankfully take a I think, thankfully, to, this is what I am. I'm not sure I could change it, but to take the long view of things and deal with sort of the ups and downs in a relatively balanced way so I don't get overly excited by the ups, but I also don't get overly down when things are not working. I just look for kind of ways to try to get things on the right trajectory. So I think by nature, I'm probably able to do that better than most. But I think every CEO needs to do some of that. And even if it's not really their preference or maybe even a fit with their personality, they need to always be the leader of the company and recognize just as coaches of teams, sometimes you have to implement a certain strategy. Sometimes you have to implement a different strategy. And if you're winning a game, you know, it's a different dynamic at the in halftime than if you're losing the game. And I find it's no different in the world I've been in. So after that Apple deal, things kind of get unleashed for the business. At its peak, which I think was during this 10-year heyday run that AOL was having, up to half of all CD-ROMs produced in the world were AOL CDs that you were shipping out that would give users unlimited access to the internet for 20 bucks a month. And during that time is when AOL basically became the company that it became. Is that fair? Like things were riding pretty high. Yeah, I think, as I said, the first decade was slow. The second decade was fast. We went from hundreds of thousands of users to tens of millions of users. We went from a couple hundred employees when we went public to I think it was 10,000 when we merged with uh, Time Warner seven or eight years later. And so things really accelerated on every front. And that's because after a decade of trying to convince people that the internet made sense and it was something that would have kind of mass market appeal and that eventually everybody would see the benefits of being online. And for that first decade, just looking at people and seeing their skeptical eyes and saying, well, this feels like it's something interesting for computer hobbyists, but not necessarily going to be interesting for everybody. In the mid 90s, suddenly it went from nobody cared about the internet to everybody wanted to be on the internet. And thankfully, America Online AOL was positioned at the right place at the right time with the right partnership with the PC manufacturers, the modem manufacturers, and also the strategy of distributing the disks. And so we became the beneficiary of that. And uh, I think at our peak, about half of all the internet traffic in the United States went through AOL. Crazy. So it, was a, it went from kind of fringy to a big industry and went from a fledgling little startup to a pretty significant company. Most don't realize how difficult scaling is like that. It's almost like a taboo to talk about how hard it is in the scaling days because things are working. The business is on fire. How hard was that? Trying to double, triple at least the company every year, revenue, employees, infrastructure, process. You have to probably break down and then rebuild everything every two quarters. It's actually even somewhat more difficult then because this is the era well before AWS and others were like racking and stacking servers. We were building servers as fast as we could. Often we had to stop marketing because we didn't have capacity, server capacity or modem capacity. So the marketing team and the operations team were in lockstep and sometimes the marketing decisions were driven by what was possible in terms of how much capacity did we have and even targeting a marketing to certain cities where we had modem more modem capacity because we were building out this network all over the country so people back then it was dial up modems could dial into their local place to then connect to our broader uh, network so it was tricky from a scaling the operations standpoint 
obviously tricky from scaling the team, you know, really rapidly hiring a lot of people. And I realized I had to shift from like most entrepreneurs being involved in everything to ideally as CEO being involved in nothing, really having, you know, the right team focused on the right priorities, empowering them, trusting them to do what they needed to do. And it was just not scalable if I was involved in everything. So it was really a mindset shift for me as CEO. And also then started recognizing that it wasn't just a company. I was sort of a evangelist for and sort of spokesperson for this internet medium. And I was spending more and more time traveling the world, talking about the internet, spending more time in Washington, D.C., Brussels, other places, trying to help forge the right public policy related to the, the internet. So a number of things happened and it took some adjustment as well as kind of going from being kind of anonymous to being fairly well known. So there are a lot of things happened in a relatively short period of time. What year was AIM introduced? Do you remember? Probably. I don't remember the exact year, but probably 98, something like that. 98. That's the number that I I got it right. That's the number that I have as well. (laughs) A lot of people were betting on different things for how the internet was going to be used. And you and the team firmly believed that community and connections was going to be the killer use case of the internet. And you were right. And it absolutely captured the zeitgeist of everything in this country as soon as that thing was introduced. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think what happened was some of it was based on our vision around how the internet would evolve and the role of community connecting people in a lot of variety of ways. But the other part of it, when we launched in 85, I mentioned we only raised a million dollars. We couldn't really compete as a content player because we had no content, unlike New York Times or a lot of other people who are doing things. We couldn't really compete in terms of commerce selling things because you know, we had no capability there either. You know, in Sears, had a lot of that, for example, with the prodigy. So we bet on community because that was the one that that we had more control over building and leading in. And so even our first service in 1985, we launched it with a chat room, something called People Connection. We introduced for the first time the idea of instant messaging. Of course, there were bulletin boards and other ways to connect. And throughout all the years I was running AOL until we merged with Time Warner and over 20 years ago, over half of our usage was community features. So it was always the killer app for the internet. It was certainly the leading you know, util- part of utilization of our service. So turned out we did guess right in terms of community being important. And some of that, as I said, was because that was our belief that it was going to be the killer app, but also pragmatically, that was a part of our go-to-market strategy. Does it not feel to you a little bit like crypto is looking for the IAM version of what it has in the sense that, let me just explain briefly, there is a lot of interesting technology happening on the back end. However, there doesn't seem to be a lot of very interesting use cases that are coming out of this technology yet. You know, maybe it's NFTs, maybe it's not. I'm not quite sure what the killer use case is going to be. In your mind, does it feel like we're at the 3% of the internet days in, in what crypto is and they're searching for that killer thing? Or am I drawing parallels that don't exist? Yeah, I think that's fair with crypto and more broadly sort of the basket of technologies that people put into the Web3 bucket. They're building a lot of things, trialing a lot of things. But as you said, it's not clear exactly what the killer apps are going to be that really ignite a mass market kind of audience. I guess what's different is in the case of crypto, 
our situation was because people didn't see those use cases, because most people actually didn't believe there was going to be a mainstream use case, it was very hard to raise money. In the case of crypto, it's been easy to raise money. And so in some ways, companies have been overcapitalized given the stage of their development are now trying to scurry to build out a business to justify that valuation. No doubt over the next 10 or 20 years, some use cases will emerge and crypto blockchain, certainly other technologies will end up being foundational technologies. But I think it is fair to say we're in a phase of rapid experimentation. A lot of things will fail. Some things will emerge as leading the charge. In 1998, you bought Netscape, also a KP company, for about four-ish billion dollars. That then became the front door to the internet in some ways, the portal which you could access browsing the internet. That continued to further accelerate things. I want to fast forward to well, hold on. Let me uh, correct that a little bit Please. with the. AOL, we positioned it early on as, or first of all, I should say, when we launched AOL in 1985, it was still illegal for consumers or businesses to be on the internet by restricted to government agencies and educational institutions. So if you worked for the CIA or you were at a university campus, you could be on the internet. But if you were a consumer business, you couldn't. So everything we were doing at AOL and other companies, CompuServe, Prodigy, others, were essentially creating a, almost a parallel online world because we were not allowed to be part of the quote unquote internet world. That changed when the communications laws were passed. I think it was 1991, something like that. Maybe it was 1990, where it allowed the commercialization of the internet. And we moved rapidly to try to position AOL as the on-ramp to the internet and integrated a browser into AOL and a lot of other you know, gopher ways, other early internet services. And that really drove a lot of our growth when things accelerated. But in addition to having the AOL brand, which was our obviously our flagship and most of our revenue, we launched a slew of new brands. We talked about AIM that didn't require being an AOL member. We acquired a number of companies, MapQuest and others that were niche providers of certain services. And then we acquired uh, Netscape and viewed that as sort of a flanker brand that Netscape would be integrated into AOL, but also available separately if you were not an AOL customer. So we really were trying to, at that point, come at the market from a variety of different vantage points. No matter how you were getting in the internet, we wanted to be part of your solution, part of your on-ramp. Here I am trying to rewrite history. So then in 2000, you met the CEO of Time Warner on a plane going to China. Is that right? No. Okay, go ahead. I had met Jerry Levin, who was the CEO. <laughs> we actually were both on the board of the New York Stock Exchange in the late 1990s. I knew him from that. And I was invited to keynote a conference in, I believe it was in Singapore, the Fortune Global Forum and then go on to Beijing for a series of events. It actually was the 50th anniversary of communism in China, so a whole series of events, including a massive parade. You went to, you went to Square. that. Square, yeah. Time Warner had happened to decide to take its entire board to China that, that during that same time frame and did a number of events in China and then also was all at this big celebration in Beijing. So at that point, I spent more time with Jerry, more time with Ted Turner and many other board members and was starting to think that putting our companies together made sense. And so some of my being there was, they didn't know this at the time, but I was trying to build some relationships and some goodwill. And then a month or so after I got back from China, I reached out to Jerry and proposed we merged our companies. Just a quick note, did 
you think it was weird as one of the greatest capitalists that we've ever seen in the country of the United States to go celebrate China's commerce. Of course, it was totally weird. Surreal, actually. It was uh, 20 plus years ago. And even, you know, Beijing was not the city you know, it is today. There's far more bikes than cars. And, and G and I spent some time, you know, traveling around, going to the Great Wall, but also driving into the country and just getting a sense of the country. But no, for sure, it was bizarre and surreal. In fact, the other part that I remember was, was I thought was amusing, but she did not, was at the time Ted Turner was married to Jane Fonda. And at the dinner at the Great Hall of the People celebrating communism, he would be walking around introducing Jane to communist leaders, saying, here's my commie pinko wife, Jane. She did not like that. A few years later, they were divorced. I don't think it had anything to do with that, but it probably didn't help. So the whole whole event was definitely surreal. So ultimately, the merger happened in 2001, right? I heard people were surprised the deal didn't leak. It seemed like it was actually a pretty tight process. Is that fair to say? And it was pretty efficient? Yeah, it was a pretty tight process. We knew if it leaked, it'd be very difficult to get the deal done. So we had some discussions they broke down. We had restarted the discussions. They broke down again. So it really was two or three months before we finally had an agreement. But both at AOL and at Time Warner, we kept it to a fairly small group because we knew it would be super sensitive. It was hard to structure the deal because AOL was much smaller in terms of revenues and even smaller still in terms of Almost profit. 10 times smaller, right? But our market value was higher. And so we were able to structure a deal where it was a merger of equals. AOL shareholders got 55% of the company. Time Warner shareholders got 45% of the company. But Time Warner was contributing, I think it was 80% of the revenue, something like 90% of the profit. So it was a tricky deal to strike. And we had to time it right in terms of when, when, where the Time Warner stock price was and the AOL stock price. So we could pay a premium. I think we paid a 70% premium of what the Time Warner stock was trading at, but it still resulted in AOL shareholders getting a little bit more than half of the company. So it was definitely a tricky deal to structure. As part of the deal, on the first minute I, when I called Jerry to propose we merge our companies and said AOL is the kind of the leader of the internet and Time Warner is leader in the media and communications world. Together, the, this company would really be a terrific platform and allow us at AOL to have a path to broadband, allow Time Warner to have more of a path to a digital, a brighter digital future within the first minute, I said, I will step down as CEO. You to make volunteered this deal. to I, do that. I, I, I knew based on our investment bankers said there's essentially no chance. You've you already done this rodeo. Time Warner to merge, <laughs> but the only sliver of hope would be if they, you essentially position it as they're taking you over and not you're taking them over. And the best way to do that would be to basically take off the table who's going to lead the company. And so I did. And I think that was the right uh, decision to get the deal done. Obviously, I had some frustration down the road when I was not running the company and I was making decisions that I was not necessarily supportive of. But I did think it was the right thing to do from an AOL perspective, both to make sure we had that path to broadband and hedge a little bit of the downside risk. Our stock, as I mentioned, had gone from 70 million when it went public to 160 billion. I think two years before it was something like 20 billion. So it went from 20 billion to 160 billion in 24 months. And when the internet was really on fire and we knew it'd be hard to sustain that valuation given it had gone up so much. I think at that time where our PE ratio was something like 160. And so that we just wanted to be part of a broader company, a more diversified portfolio of businesses. They're, they're, they're a company that was generating collectively 40 billion of revenue, 10 billion of profit, and having 55% of that, we thought made sense. But the price of that was essentially handing the baton in terms of leading AOL to Time Warner. And what was the combined 
market cap of both companies? I think at its peak, it was about $300 billion. You know, 300. Both, it, it traded up on the announcement to 300 something billion. I've always been a little confused by this. It's known as the worst merger of all time. But if I'm you, it's the best merger of all time. Is that well, fair? It's a little bit of both. I'd say it's the worst merger of all time because the stock declined rapidly after the companies merged and the businesses suffered greatly. And certainly on the AOL side, which went from as I mentioned before, when we did the merger, half of the internet consumer internet traffic was on AOL to now being you know insignificant player in the internet space. So that was a negative. The share decline was a big negative. And so the culture clash that happened post-merger sure. was a big negative. But yes, from a AOL shareholder standpoint, the fact that we, at the, what turned out to be the peak of the internet boom, that dot-com boom, we timed it pretty well. We were able to trade our currency, which in retrospect, people, some people have said probably correctly, was a somewhat inflated currency to have the majority ownership of a company that was much more diversified, much more profitable. It was the right thing to do for AOL shareholders, even if I regret how it played out from an execution standpoint and even how it AOL went from being so dominant to being kind of irrelevant a couple of decades later. But didn't the employees and you get liquidity and stuff during that point? Wasn't there a parachute for you all? No, the way it was structured is a merger of equals that actually the Time Warner shareholders had more flexibility to sell than the AOL shareholders because it announced as a merger equal, but actually was structured as AOL acquiring Time Warner. So that then resulted in sort of an acceleration of vesting of the Time Warner shares, but not the AOL shares. But we all believed, I certainly believed, in the idea of the combined company. And we're you know, believers that it made sense to hold over the long, long run. Of course, that did not turn out to be the case, but that was the view when we did the deal. So correct me if I'm wrong, but two times you had to step down. Once going public, the correct. second during the merger? Correct. The first was involuntary, but I was forced to step aside. The second was voluntary. I offered to propose to step aside to allow the deal to move forward. And ultimately in 2003, you stepped down from AOL. In 2005, you stepped down from the Time Warner board. Did you ever like sulk? I don't know. I've heard many, many entrepreneurs go through the ride not realizing that it's the ride, not the outcome, it's not the summit. And then they just go through valleys of despair because they've lost so much purpose. Did that happen to you? I'd say some of that. There was definitely frustration about what was happening. Again, I've gone from leading as CEO AOL, which was one of the most successful companies at the time, to being initially chair of the board, but none of the businesses reported to me, and then just being a member of the board for a couple more years. And it was frustrating to go from kind of leading to watching, and even more frustrated at some of the decisions that I thought should get made were not getting made. And indeed, often it was the reverse of what I would have done. So attending those board meetings, I felt it was the right thing to do to provide some continuity. And I wanted to fight on behalf of all the shareholders and particularly represent AOL. But I didn't feel like I was being heard. I, and I think the rest of the board members were getting tired of me raising some of the same uh, ideas. Mike, Mike, the core idea that was driving the merger in my head was that in a world where technologies were converging and industries would converge and business models would converge, operating AOL Time Warner in a more integrated way, really thinking about it as one company as opposed to a bunch of independent divisions would be the right way to do. Hard to, hard to manage that way, but the right way to manage it. Again, this was before Netflix had a streaming service or Spotify even was launched and a company, the assets we had at AOL Time Warner with the AOL brand and distribution, Time Warner Cable was the largest broadband cable 
you know, company. Warner Music was the largest music company. Warner right. Brothers was the largest movie company. We had all the Turner assets, CNN, and so forth. We had HBO that we would really be able to lead the charge around streaming of music and video and create all kinds of other products, but only if you thought of it in a more integrated kind of way. But they chose to really continue to run every business as a separate business. There actually was what I called reverse synergy, that there was some costs associated with having all those businesses under one roof, which is why I started advocating a strategy to either integrate or liberate, either run the company in a more integrated way or break up the company, and ultimately they decided to break up the company. This is kind of an unfair question, but knowing what you know now, and probably how much bigger the internet ever turned out to be than you could have possibly thought, would you make different decisions? Do you partly wish you're still the CEO of AOL right now? Like, well, of course. There's some aspects where I think if AOL had stayed independent, we would have continued to grow. You mentioned Meg Whitman at the at, uh, earlier in the conversation. While we were finalizing the deal with Time Warner, we actually, Meg was in a different conference room in our headquarters, and we were negotiating to acquire eBay, and we also were having some discussions with Electronic in, Arts. In case the deal didn't go our, through our, Time our Warner. Strategy was to take our stock, our currency, and make a transformative move. So we looked at merging with communications companies like AT&T. We looked at merging with other internet companies like eBay and others. We also looked at merging, obviously, with media companies and ultimately decided Time Warner, because of its unique mix of assets, including the technology broadband assets as well as the content assets, that would be the best play. But if that deal had fallen apart, we would have gone the other path of acquiring eBay and other. She was literally in the room next door. Literally. And then we had the two days after we announced the merger, I asked Jerry Levin, who was the CEO of Time Warner, to fly out with me to California to meet with the eBay team and say, we still want to do this deal. We just need to get our AOL and Time Warner merger closed first. So hang in there. Obviously, that never happened. So sure, there were, there were regrets about what happened. The regrets that AOL was such a leader and now is sort of irrelevant. But in retrospect, looking at the set of facts at the time in terms of what was happening in the space and the role AOL was playing, some of our concerns around sustaining that evaluation, some of our concerns about being the leader in dialogue up narrow band and not having a path to broadband. We even lobbied Congress to try to have open access for broadband, the same provisions that existed in narrow band and were unsuccessful with that. So there really was strategic risk to AOL to remain independent and also financial risk to sustain that valuation. So even today, looking back, despite all the disappointments in terms of what's happened, I still think it was the right call. In the book, you say, from a personal standpoint, I was getting worn out. This is reflecting back at the end, end of your time. It was kind of like being on a bucking bronco and the speed kept accelerating. When it went from pioneering to scaling, icon and making speeches wasn't as fun. I had a young family and needed time to focus more on that. And had gone through a divorce at that time as well and then remarried. And so there was a recognition that they needed to spend more time on that side of things. And that wasn't the reason to do the merger. That wasn't the reason to step aside as CEO. But it was, in my view, a part of the overall way I was thinking about it. Is there any way to manage that? Like, is there any way to like do what you were doing at AOL and then manage the marriage? Yeah, I'd say you know, in retrospect, without getting into any of the details, it was probably just not meant to be. And you know, my ex-wife, we have a good relationship, and we've had the 
blessing in the last couple of years of becoming grandparents, going from zero grandchildren to now three. And she's been just an awesome grandmother there and supporter to the parents, some of whom are in Connecticut, some of whom are in, in, uh, in California. I'm super grateful for that. But I think she would agree that it was just for a whole host of reasons, kind of not meant to be the challenges of building AOL and the amount of time I need to spend focusing on AOL for sure was a contributor, but I wouldn't pin the whole thing just on that. Fair enough. Dude, it's absolutely amazing. I got to tell you, like, how old are you, 65? Not quite. Don't get me up age so far. I'm, I'm uh, 63. 63. 63. I, have to, I have to always do the math. I was born in 1958. I wish you could go do another company. I mean, you are technically doing another company, but it amazes me that when we talk, you don't skip a beat. You are still just as motivated and driven and sharp as I feel like you probably were when you were 27 years old. So it's absolutely amazing to see and I just I appreciate well, thank it. Thank you. No, it's been a great journey and, and, and the journey continues. As I mentioned, I do think of Revolution as my next company. I'm hoping next 10 or 20 years it emerges as one of the most important investment companies in the country but focused on the entrepreneurs in places that are underfunded and often ignored and that's why I'm particularly focused on this rise of the rest strategy of trying to level the playing field which is why I wrote the book that's coming out this fall and it's why I hit the road frequently to visit entrepreneurs and visit cities and do what I can to catalyze more activity there. I think that's going to be the important chapter for the next 10 years or so and anything I can do to make sure that America remains the most innovative uh, entrepreneur nation in the world. I'll do anything I can do to do that in a more inclusive way, bringing along more people in more places I'm happy to do. And some of that, most of that is through the prism of revolution backing companies, whether it be through our Rise of the Rest Seed Fund or our Revolution Ventures or a later stage Revolution Growth Fund. That's obviously the main event. But I also still do get involved on policy matters. And right now I'm co-chairing the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship that's focusing on the industries of the future, focusing on promoting regional hubs, a number of other things that are really set the table for this next era of American innovation. It is absolutely amazing. The book comes out September 27th. I assume you can get it on Amazon. Correct. And- you can pre-order right now. All right. Pre-order it. Last question I ask everybody, when you think of the word grit, what does it mean to you? I think we talked about some of it. It's, it's sort of passion, perseverance. For me, it's picking having the courage to pick a battle worth fighting and then persisting, you know, just being resilient, figuring out some way to, to keep moving forward. And you know, there are always going to be challenges. There are always going to be things that try to stop you. And you just need to understand what's in front of you and figure out some way to either go around the wall or go over the wall or knock the wall down or some way to move to the next stage. And if it's a, it is important, it is something you're passionate about that I think does give you the ability to persevere, does give you that resilience, does allow you to, going back to what we talked about earlier, to continue to see that light at the end of the tunnel and keep fighting. But my experience is anything important, anything worth fighting for is not going to fall into your lap. You're going to have to fight for it. And often that's going to be over 10 or 20 years. It's not going to be just an overnight success. So that to me is grit in the business world. Obviously, there's grit in other sectors as well that require different kind of dynamics. But it's really, you know, kind of passion meets perseverance. Steve Case, thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com. 